thought we'd start out tonight by saying something about this event that's coming up for our young people this weekend. Starts Friday night. Starts Friday night at 7, and I don't, maybe we should say 6.30. Just be here before 7. That, that was kind of tacky. I'm sorry about that. Uh, I don't know that it's possible to exaggerate in this day and time how important this topic is for our kids. Well, you think that's right? That's right, David. The lessons next weekend are going to be on evidences. Why we believe and the challenges to our faith, and let's face it, our faith is challenged every day through virtually every medium, through uh, the Internet, through radio and TV, uh, through education, through the government. Our faith is challenged. And when I say our faith, I'm talking about all of us, but our young people are the most at risk because they right now are formulating their beliefs and what they're going to hold to for the rest of their lives. And we can't overemphasize how important these studies are going to be. I, I think in 20 years, we will look back on this period that we're going through and realize that there was profound change taking place in our country, our culture, and we didn't even realize it. And, and for that reason, I just don't think we can emphasize enough how important it is for kids to have a rock-solid foundation. It hasn't always been that way. You know, there's a time where you could just sort of assume the basics. Everybody believes in God, and everybody, even if they don't follow it, thinks the Bible is the Word of God, at least a good book you ought to pay attention to. I do not believe those are the times in which we live. No. And I think increasingly kids are going to be assaulted on that, ridiculed about that. And, and listen, not from a, a few crazies that are out there. I think this is going to become where culture is. And so belief gets harder and harder as the world grows more and more hostile. And, and what we're trying to do this weekend, brothers and sisters, is prep our kids for that, to, to prepare their foundation so when that storm comes, they will be able to endure. Absolutely. So, did we freak you out a little bit? Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, really want you to make sure we get our kids out for that how, event. How many lessons are we doing total? We will do two sessions on Friday, three sessions on Saturday. And the good thing about the Saturday sessions is we're going to break them up based on age because you teach this to a college student a little different than you teach it to a fifth grader, and that's how broad our audience is. Reuben and Hunter are going to be helping us out with that. And then on Sunday, both of the groups will do a Q&A session. We'll collect their questions all weekend and just answer their questions. And then Sunday morning and Sunday night, Jeff and I will do tandem teaching, just like Max and I are doing tonight. And I can tell you in advance that Sunday morning, we will talk what I believe about what I believe is the greatest most compelling argument the atheist raises against faith. And I'll just leave that hanging there. You can come back and see what that is. But I think it is their best argument, and we need an answer for it, and that's what we'll be working on Sunday morning. And let me say this before we get into our lesson tonight, David, that we love our kids, don't we? Amen. We love our kids, and I'm talking about David and Max. We love the kids here, and we enjoy them. We want them to succeed in life. We want them to do well. And I know you love your kids. And so we want to encourage everyone to be a part of this, all of our kids to be a part of it. It's for kids. Uh, we call it Team Weekend, Youth Weekend. We start at what? Kids going into fifth grade? Kids going into fifth grade. And we broadened it out uh, to, to our kids who are in college. Usually we cut off about 20, but 
but if you can somehow stake a claim to being in college, if you're married and have children, there's no way you fit in that category, okay? But, but if you're in college, we don't care really where you are in that process, go ahead and come out. Even, you know, the college kids can, can help with that because they know some of the kind of things uh, the others will anticipate as they go yeah. off to school. And, and, and bring friends with you. Yep. Yeah, bring friends with you. Okay, Uh, we're picking up in 18. Will you go there in your Bible, Genesis chapter 18? Uh, You may recall that last month during our text talk, we stopped short of finishing chapter 18. In fact, we really only covered about half of it, and we did that for a reason because really 18 breaks into two distinct parts. In the first 15 verses, Max, we have this, we have this, a group of visitors, that's probably the safest way to say that, that comes to Abraham and, and they are announcing more about the birth of the child. They revisit uh, the child promise. But then picking up in verse 16, we have a completely different direction that we're going. It's 16's, uh, beginning of verse 16 and going all the way through 19, chapter 19. Mine's cutting in and out. The story is about Sodom. And so we decided to wait until tonight to address the rest of 18 and go on to 19 so we can deal with the whole story of Sodom. So as we prepare to do that, let me ask you to watch tonight for what I think are three contrasts that you will see in this section from the middle of 18 through the rest of 19 as he, as he talks about Sodom. First of all, you're going to see a contrast between the good news and the bad news. Uh, And with that, I'm going backward. In the early part of 18, we're talking about the coming of Isaac, which is tied, as we said this morning, to the coming of the son. This is all pointing toward Jesus and the salvation he will bring. Good news, right? So we call the gospel good news. Boy, in the latter half of 18 and 19, we see why we need it, don't we? We see this exceedingly wicked city of Sodom, how terrible men uh, become when they get off the rails and get away from God. And it just points up, be thinking about that, it points up how desperately we need the gospel. So we see this contrast between the good news and the bad news. The second contrast we see is with regard to hospitality. Because in 18, when the visitors come to Abraham, I mean, he, he does everything he can. I mean, we should want to stay at Abraham's house, right? I mean, he jumps up and he, he caters to their every need. And then think about how different that is when we get to 19 and these two angels go into the city of Sodom and how they are treated there. It's notably different. And then the third contrast I want you to notice is between the family of Abraham and the family of Lot. Because both of the men made choices in life that impacted their family. And what we're seeing here when we get to 18 and 19, Max, we're seeing the stories play out and and how they end. And so notice the difference between Abraham's choices and how it's affected his family and Lot's choices and how it affected his family. David, uh, I heard a story on the radio yesterday about rattlesnakes in Southeast Texas. You know that the tail of a rattlesnake will never hurt you. But when you pick up the tail, you've picked up the other end of the rattlesnake, too. And what you see here are the choices that Lot made, which appeared to be harmless in the beginning. He picked up that harmless end of the rattlesnake, but it winds up biting him and biting his family. Yep, that's exactly And we see the end result here. So, are you chapter 18? We're going to begin down at verse 16. If you wanted to structure this last half of the chapter, basically... 
it divides into two conversations. Uh, the first conversation is from verse 16 to verse 21, and that's with Abraham and the three visitors, and the conversation is the fate of Sodom. Then Max, the second conversation picks up in verse 22, and it's between Abraham and, yeah, we won't go there, right? That other visitor, uh, the Lord, and it's the negotiation for Sodom, and we'll deal uh, we'll deal with both pieces of that. Now, one of the questions we got was about chapter 18 and verse 21. So we'll start there with our question. When God is, is talking about Sodom, he makes this statement. He said, I will go down now and see what they have done, if what they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know it. And so that raised the question, Max, in the minds of some people, well, well does God know what's going on in Sodom or not? So what do you think about that? Does he well, know? of course God knows because God is omniscient. He knows everything. But this is one of these times when God poses a situation or a question, and he's actually doing this for the benefit of Abraham so that Abraham will know that God knows in this firsthand way. I find interesting, though, God speaks of the outcry against this land, against Sodom. And this reminds me very much of what we saw back in Genesis chapter 4. I think it was about verse, about verse 10 where Cain had killed his brother Abel, and God said, the blood of your brother Abel cries out to me from the ground. When God created the earth, he created the earth good. But when we sin on God's earth, there is a, it, it's like the earth or the land is personified, and the, the land is portrayed as being defiled now, and it's like the land itself cries out to God saying, look what people are doing. That's what you see with the blood of Abel crying out to God, and I think that's what you've got here, the outcry of the land that God has given to man. It is crying out to God, look at this awful sin. And so God says, all right, we're going to do something about it. Verse 20 does seem to indicate that he knows their sin because he said their sin is exceedingly grave. Yeah. So that he knows, there seems to be no doubt about that. I wonder too, Max, if to some degree this demonstration of God going down and seeing for himself is not for Abraham's benefit. Yeah, I think so. And it's, uh, you know, we talk sometimes about the anthropomorphism where God takes on human characteristics. And for, for Abraham to know that God is personally investigating, that says to Abraham, okay, God, I know now that God knows. And, and when you factor in what's going to follow this negotiation uh, that ultimately I think reflects his concern for Lot's family, this is not just a random city about to be judged, is it? No, it's this, not. This is the city where his nephew, that, that, that he loves, where he is. And so I wonder if in part God is going through this process of saying, I'm going to go look and see because he needs to say to Abraham, the judgment about to come is just. And so as hard as that would be for Abraham, it affirms that, uh, that what he's about to do is what needs to be done in this case. Yeah, and Abraham and Sarah have taken Lot under their wing. When Abraham traveled, Lot went with him, and of course they had to split eventually because they were both so incredibly prosperous, the land would not support both of them. So Lot made his choice, 
and he went to Sodom. So let's look at this next segment, this negotiation, because it is one of the most interesting parts of the story where, where Abraham begins to bargain with God over the city of Sodom. And he begins with 50. If I can find 50 righteous people, will you spare the city? And then there's that comment in verse 25. And I know you wanted to say something about this, where Abraham says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the, the wicked. So why don't you take off, you, you wanted to say something well, about that. Well, he says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? That's, that's Abraham's statement, and, and it's posed as a question, but really it's a rhetorical question. It's one that is a great expression of faith, David, on Abraham's part. He expresses a principle that really covers every situation in the Bible. What God does is always the right thing. I don't always know what God's going to do in a given situation, but I know it's always going to be the right thing that ought to be done. God has standards that he operates by. And Abraham is expressing his confidence in God and in God being true to his own standards. Let's talk a little bit about the bargain. We, we touched on that uh, on a Wednesday night a few weeks back when we were going through chapter 18. Uh, why from 50 to 10? Why did he whittle God down to 10? Well, Why that number? I, I'm glad that you and I agree on this. <laughs> uh, I posed this to someone 30-some years ago, 35 years ago, and someone said, oh, that's nuts. That's not right. I think Abraham, uh, Lot, Lot's family was larger than Lot, Mrs. Lot, and the two, two daughters of Lot. I think it was a larger family. Well, well we assume that, though, because four people escaped, right? Do you all remember reading that? Lot escaped. His wife escaped, and then there were two daughters. Two virgin daughters. Two virgin daughters. And so we assume four, but in reality, the text is at least open to the possibility that there are more. For example, if you look in chapter 19 and verse 12, uh, the two visitors say to Lot, whom else have you here? A son-in-law? and your sons and your daughters, whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place. So first of all, sons are mentioned. And I can't say with certain that he had sons, but it certainly opens the door that he had maybe at least a couple of boys. Well, you would think the angels would know. And then he talks about the, the sons-in-law. And of course, the question there is, are these men betrothed to his two virgin daughters? Or does he have two other daughters who are married? And the text really allows for either possibility. But if you start adding that up, you got the four that fled, at least a couple of sons, at least a couple of sons-in-law, maybe two additional daughters who are married, and you come up with the number 10. So it's possible from the language of the text that Lot, Lot's family numbered at least 10, which makes me suspicious that this is the reason he's trying to bargain God down to 10. He's thinking, surely, surely Lot's family. And, and Lot is reluctant to leave, even yes. after he's been told what's going to happen. And then his wife turns around and looks back when she's told not to. She may be thinking, you know, I've got family back there. But there's an interesting statement in verse number 15, chapter 19 and verse 15. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry 
saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here. So he's got two daughters with him, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters. And the Lord being merciful to him, they brought them, him out and set him outside the city. And so they almost have to force them to leave. Uh, Lot doesn't want to go. He lingers. He's dragging his feet. And yet the angels say, you've got to go. And you've got to go now. Well, the interesting thing is this conversation just drops, doesn't it? When you get to the end of chapter 18, yeah. uh, he bargains God down to 10. And then we really don't hear anything else about it, do we? Or do we? Because by the time we get to the end of chapter 19, what have we discovered about Lot's family? They're not so righteous. I mean, arguably, how many righteous people were in Sodom? You've got Lot, and he's questionable. <laughs> Lot's about the only one. Yeah. And so I think the assumption was, in Abraham's mind, surely Lot's family. And what do we find out by the end of the story? Not even Lot's family was yeah. preserved. Yeah. Well, that brings us to 19 and the actual destruction of Sodom. Will you turn ahead to chapter 19? Uh, when I look at this chapter, Max, I see at least three, three sections to the chapter. In the first 14 verses, we have the angels coming and all of that drama and their warning to Lot. And then picking up at 15, you have the actual coming of the destruction of Lot. And then there's a closing episode right at the very end, beginning in verse 30, with his, with his daughters. So let's go back to that opening section. I would just point out uh, in, in those first few verses, uh, we see that contrast in hospitality uh, where, where the men of the city come to Lot's house at night. And verse five, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring, uh, bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. So, so in contrast to the way the men were treated when they visited Abraham, here they come to Sodom and, and the men of the city are, are ready to be involved in this gross immorality and act of, of violence against them. And so we see the extraordinary wickedness of the city. Well, that, that's right. And uh, the sin of Sodom is one of, of homosexuality. In fact, the term sodomite is used later in the Bible to describe men like this. And you mentioned in the beginning, David, that our culture is changing. And one of the changes in our culture has been the acceptance, widespread acceptance, not just of homosexuality, but of same-sex marriage. Fifteen years ago, no one could conceive of that. And yet now, more than 50% of people in America say, well, okay, it's all right. Uh, our culture has definitely changed. And there are a number of people who will go to the Bible and try to prove from the Scripture that homosexuality and same-sex marriage is acceptable to God. In fact, there's a, there is a, a line of thinking that's labeled gay theology where people believe that you can reinterpret the Bible, or they would say interpret it correctly, in a way that would allow for the homosexual lifestyle, gay theology. Well, I, I think we need to be fair. And, and let's just say this, a number of arguments may be made to justify homosexuality, but it is consistently, without exception, portrayed in Scripture as wrong. Uh, in Leviticus chapter 19, under Moses' law, a simple statement is found in Levit Leviticus 18, Leviticus 18:22, when it simply says, "You shall not lie with a male, as with a 
woman, it is an abomination. Do not defile yourself with any of these things, for by all these the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you, for the land is defiled. There's that idea, again, of the land crying out because of sin. And therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. When you look at Leviticus, when you look at Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and numerous other places in the New Testament as well as the Old homosexuality is not approved by God. And today, if you oppose homosexuality, if you say, believe it's wrong, according to the Scriptures, you're regarded as bigoted. And that's a sad, sad state of affairs. Well, and I would add to that, not only can you not make a Bible argument to defend this conduct, you can't make any argument to defend this conduct. So if someone wants to argue from Scripture, they're going to lose. If someone is going to argue from the uh, perspective of biology and anatomy, you know, just the physical body teaches us that men are supposed to be with women, not women with women and men with men. If you make the sociological argument based on impact on society, if you make the psychological argument based on how this lifestyle choice impacts one's life and mental health, however you choose to make the argument, the argument in favor of this behavior loses. It never works. People are disadvantaged in every way by this lifestyle. And what we're doing, brothers and sisters, living in a culture where people buried their heads in the sand against this. Let a sociologist come out and say, this lifestyle hurts our culture, and he'll be labeled as a hateful bigot. Publish the facts. I'll never forget this. We did an event at Lamar University. Some of you will remember this. Um, the very first of it we did at Lamar with Thaxter Dickey. And, and it was while he was citing the statistical data on how homosexuality leads to a damaged life. And it was at that point one young man got up and stormed out of the room. Some of you may remember that. And I thought, what a bizarre moment to leave. Here are facts being cited. And this guy gets up at that moment and chooses to leave. But my point is, there is no defense for the behavior. And the fact that we are living in a culture that embraces it, I will just remind you folks, over the centuries, our culture has embraced a lot of things that were wrong and immoral. And the fact that this is acceptable today doesn't mean any more acceptable than the fact 250 years ago, slavery was acceptable in this culture. That was vile and evil then, even though people accepted it. This is vile and evil now, even though our culture accepts and, it. Well, to make this a civil rights issue, uh, someone said, you know, Martin Luther King, who did so much for civil rights, he would support it today. He'd support same-sex marriage. I think that is a slander against his name. Whatever you may think about all the great work that he did, it's a slander against his name to try to bring him from the past and say he would support that today. There's no, there's no such indication of that whatever. Well, we need to, we need to press on because we, we, we could rant about that a long time. Uh, we need to talk about these daughters at the end of chapter 19 and what is surely not just one of the most disturbing sections of Genesis, uh, Max, uh, it, is, it is one of the most disturbing incidents. And I'm getting ahead of myself. I want to talk about uh, first Lot's offer of his virgin daughters. When the men come to the door of the house, you know, some people freak out about this and are very disturbed 
about the Bible that it would record this story where Lot offers his daughters instead of these angels to this violent crowd, and they use that as a ground to accuse the Bible, that this awful thing happens in the Bible where he offers these daughters to these men who are demanding the angels. I'm not so sure that that has anything to do with God at all. No, it's Lot who's offering it, not God. And, and, and let's be clear, the fact that he does it and it's mentioned in the Bible doesn't mean that God approves of it. That's right. Remember, children of Israel offered their children to pagan gods as human sacrifices. The Bible mentions it. They did it. It doesn't mean that God approved of it in any way. Well, that, that's right. Uh, you know, again, this is part of Lot's bad choices where, where the, he's got the other end of the snake now and it's starting to bite him. Yeah, I tell you, would you like to be in Lot's sandals at this moment? These men are trying to break into his home and take the angels that are there. Who do you offer, the angels from heaven or your daughters? Well, I think I know what I would do, but nonetheless, either way is a terrible choice. And the consequences of his foolish choice, yeah. isn't it? It's, it's terrible, terrible circumstance. But, you know, he chose to be in that city, and now he's reaping some of the consequences. Now he's reaping the consequences. Yeah. And then we have that incident, that sad incident at the very end of the chapter with his daughters and that incestuous relationship that happens at the end of the chapters. I think in some ways that is sort of the, the, the climactic moment of Lot's failure with his family, isn't it? Yeah, and by the end of the chapter, Lot has lost everything. That, I think, is the point. Because you remember why he chose to go there. Do you all remember that part of the story? Why did Lot choose the area near Sodom? Oh, it was fertile. This is the good land. I can make money here. I think Lot sees the opportunity to be very prosperous near Sodom. Let me ask you, what did he leave Sodom with? You see it? Absolutely nothing. And I don't just mean his possessions. He lost whatever family was there besides his two daughters. And now here at the close of the chapter, he's lost his two daughters. And he's too. lost his wife too. Yes. Uh, and by the way, in Luke chapter 17, uh, in verse 32, Jesus, when he's telling the disciples to, when you see Jerusalem in trouble here and the, the Romans coming, you need to get out of, out of town, leave Jerusalem, go to the mountains. And he said, remember Lot's wife, remember Lot's wife. Uh, who turned back. Uh, just as a side note, David, virtually every miraculous incident, and this was a miraculous incident, his wife being turned to a pillar of salt. Virtually every one of those things, Jesus confirms the, the reality and truthfulness of those in the New Testament. Well, let's go ahead to 20. We've got nine minutes. I know we went on and on about the, the homosexuality thing, which needs to be said, but we do need to cover 20 and 21. 20 is a pretty simple story, but one with Great implications. Could y'all believe that Abraham did this again? That he goes and lies about his relationship with Sarah again, fearing that this king is going to kill him, except this time, Max, this decision has serious implications because of the promise about the son. God, yeah. has, God has told him, 
Isaac will be born within the year, and now another man has taken Sarah as his wife. If they have relations, we have a problem, don't we? Yeah. And that is? Well, the question's his fatherhood. Who is Isaac's father, really? Yeah. That's exactly right. You know, for people who say the Bible is boring, <laughs> I mean, the days of our lives, as the world turns, got nothing on this story here. This is the most dysfunctional family you will ever encounter in your life. Well, I don't know what God did, but what we do know in this story with Abimelech is that God prevented Sarah and Abimelech from having relations. That does not happen. And I, I said I don't know what he did. I do know that he did something because in verse 17, Abraham prayed for Abimelech to be healed. And we do know there's a reference to the women's wombs being closed during this period. And we do know in verse 7 that Abimelech is told that if he remains with Sarah, he's going to die. And then in verse 6, we're told that God prevented him from going in with her. So my suspicion is, do y'all notice how delicate we're being tonight through all of, there's some really <laughs> indelicate stories here and we're being real careful with the way we handle that. God said something here that prevented them from being together. Maybe it was some kind of illness that afflicted him, but God intervenes again to prevent Abraham from messing this up as he seems to consistently do. Yeah, and uh, I got a question late this afternoon about how did the people know the wombs had been closed? And it possibly back in verse 3, when God spoke in a dream to Abimelech, that could have been when God made that clear that this is what I'm doing right now. Yeah, one of the interesting things we don't have here is time. So we don't know how long this went on. That might help us to kind of ascertain right. what was happening here. The important thing is, it wasn't happening because God intervened and prevented it. And that, then, and then right. of course, before we're done, Abimelech gets very generous with Abraham, doesn't it? Well, that's right. And, you know, my th first thought here is that Abraham would give something to Abimelech as a peace offering <laughs> to apologize for what he's done. Because Abraham is clearly in the wrong in portraying Sarah merely as his sister. But instead, Abimelech gives gifts to Abraham. And I think there are two reasons for that. First of all, it's to show he had no evil intent in the matter about Sarah. And so the giving of the thousand pieces of silver vindicates Sarah. It was an apology on the part of Abimelech. We might think it'd be the other way around, but it wasn't. But secondly, I think he gives these gifts to Abraham as a way of courting Abraham's favor. He evidently has learned from God that Abraham is a special man who has a special plan and uh, as part of God's special plan. And by the way, Abraham is in the land of the Philistines now. He's not in Canaanite territory. He's over on the coast in Gerar. That's on the coast, Philistine territory. But I think he realizes, hey, if Abraham is my friend, I'm going to be blessed by God. Remember the promise back in Genesis chapter 12. And also he wants Abraham to pray for him, which yes. Abraham does. Yes, it's, it's part of that, I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. Evidently, Abimelech picks up on that and wanted to be on the good side of the equation. We'll see that some more when we get to chapter 21. Yeah, he, he's making a good choice here by wanting to be on Abraham's side. By the way, we're going to see the name Abimelech later in another story. And here comes a spoiler. Isaac is going to do the same thing 
He's going to do the same thing as his dad did, claiming that his wife is his sister. And there's another Abimelech in Gerar. Uh, Abimelech was not so much a proper name as it was a title for the Philistine kings. It's like Pharaoh to the Egyptians, Caesar to the Romans, Abimelech to the Philistines. Well, we need to press on to 21. And 21 is... 21 is critical. It's the moment, isn't it? It is. Uh, three, three pieces to the chapter. In the first eight verses, finally, finally, Isaac is born and Abraham has an heir. And, and then all, almost immediately, the next story, beginning in verse 9, is about a problem. Now there's conflict with Hagar and Sarah over the children. And then there's that little episode right at the end of 21 where he makes a covenant with Abimelech. But let's start with the key event. Uh, the promise has been fulfilled. And it seems to me that there is great effort to emphasize how God kept his word here. God took note of Sarah, verse one said, the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised, verse two says, at the time which God had spoken to him. So God does everything that he said he was going to do, fulfills the promise in exactly the way he said he was. And I think that accounts for the, the growth in Abraham's faith because in his mind, this was just absolutely impossible. Well, that's right. And I, th- I think there's several things to take note of. One here, take note of the time factor. It was 25 years ago that God told Abraham that he's going to have a son. Uh, and of course, the impossible has now become a reality. Remember with God, all things are possible where all the questions that Abraham had about, well, maybe it's my servant who will be the heir. Maybe it's Ishmael, the son by Hagar, who will be the heir. No, it's going to be the son Isaac by Sarah. And all of that now is settled. Well, in pressing on to this next section, I think that, that the events that take place with Hagar and Ishmael leaving wind up being really, really important. There's actually a lot of uncertainty about this. On the surface, it just kind of looks like Sarah got mad, doesn't it? Sarah got mad, uh, maybe Ishmael's picking on Isaac. Even the language there's not certain about that and, 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 just, and just once are gone. But I think God sees a broader purpose here in creating a clear line of distinction between Ishmael and Isaac and who the heir is going to be. And so whatever Sarah's motive might have been, God's motive is we do need to create that separation so there won't be any doubt about who the heir is, who the promise is going to flow through. That's right. And, of course, uh, Ishmael is the father of the Arabs. And uh, there's been that conflict between the sons of Isaac and the sons of Ishmael ever since. Let's, uh, let's say just a word about Abimelech before we leave. Okay. It's such an odd story, isn't it? Uh, we've been dealing with all this stuff about the child and, and, and the promise now has been fulfilled. 21 is kind of this climactic moment and then the downside with, with Hagar and, and Ishmael being, being sent away. But then you have this little piece at the end about the covenant with Abimelech. And the question is, well, why is this here And what is its importance? What do you think about that? Why is this added at this moment? Well, I think it's there to show very early in the game that God is going to bless those who treat Abraham well. And Abimelech says, listen, treat my family well. Treat all my people well. Stay here in this land. That's what he appeals to him to do. And so Abraham agrees to that. I I think it goes back to that promise. The The one that doesn't make the top three 
But I think it keeps making its way into the, the narratives as we go through Genesis. And that is, I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And, and interesting with Abimelech, Abimelech figures that out. Do y'all see that? And he's like, I want you here. And I want to be in your good graces because clearly to be connected with you is a good thing. He says, God is with you, Abraham. I want to be with you, so God will bless me. He had a dream to back that up, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Well, there's so much more that I'd like to talk about with respect to this, but the most important thing, David, that we've seen tonight is the birth of Isaac. This is the, the moving forward now of God's plan to bring a Savior into the world. We're going to see in Genesis 22, verse 18, that it's an Abraham's seed that all the earth would be blessed. And so Isaac, you got Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Jacob has 12 sons. This is the 12 tribes of Israel uh, here from this nation of Israel is going to come, the Redeemer. And, of course, the Redeemer has come. And I, I would just read one last verse, and that's Galatians 3.29. If you belong to Christ, then you are part of Abraham's seed, and you are heirs according to the promise. And I would say this. We want to be on this side. You know, you can choose to be in opposition to God and His plan, or you can choose to be a part of God's plan. That's the option that God gives to all of mankind. And those who choose to be a part of God's plan, God's going to bless them, isn't He? And those who oppose God's plan, then you put yourself under the curse, and that's a tragedy. Maybe there's someone here tonight that says, I need to make the same choice that others have made to submit to Jesus in faith, repentance, and baptism so that I can be blessed by God. If that's what you would do, we invite you to come now as we stand and sing. Come now.